you'd think a pandemic would slow down the pace of investment in agriculture and food technology. And you'd be wrong. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. For the last decade, the amount of money invested in ag and food technology, from the Internet of Things to new ways to deliver food to customers, has been almost mind-boggling. Yet in the middle of an economy-stopping pandemic, it would be logical to think that the investment might just slow down. In fact, it went up. And that's according to a new report from Finisterre Ventures and Pitchbook. Finisterre Ventures is an investment group that has long followed agriculture. We caught up with Arama Kukatai, a partner at Finisterre, to discuss the report and learn more about why interest in agriculture and food isn't slowing down at all. Arama, welcome to Around Farm Progress. It's uh, great to talk with you and catch up with you and uh, just kind of get a an ag tech check on the marketplace. But you've got a new report out, a new pitch book from Finisterre, and I was surprised by this report. Um, I thought during the pandemic, the the angel investors and the secured creditors of the world that are trying to get into ag startups might have backed off a little bit. That is not true, is it? No, in fact, it's uh, 180 degrees from that. You know, if we look at the report, um, really good to see you as well and, and chat um, here. Yes, uh, I think the results in 2020 were nothing short of astounding. Uh, when we think about the timing in mid-March, when uh, a lot of businesses and obviously the country started to react with respect to the pandemic, with shutdowns and cessation of business, um, the move to you know the Zoom land, Meet land, Teams land we now live in, the communications. Um, at that time, we actually convened a working group of VCs that we regularly interact with and had a conversation, uh, which was frankly, what do we all think is going to happen here? And I think our conclusion was 2020 was going to be a really tough year because it's hard to invest in companies you can't meet. Um, it's hard for companies trying to raise capital to get money for the same reason, at least that's the thesis, right? Which yeah. was bounded in a, in a worldview that said everything has to happen in person which we now know, of course, we look back and go, ah, of course, of course it hasn't worked out that way. But at the time, that was the concern. And um, I think everyone in that group were, were already strategizing on how they could support the companies they felt were worthy of support, that were good fundamental companies that they were concerned were going to be put in a hard place by the pandemic, like you know, so many Americans, so many people around the world have been, right? So no different here in Ventureland. And... Um, in fact, what we then saw in that Q2 set of data is a enormous spike of fundraising investment that occurred. Our thesis of which is that a lot of that was follow-on investing. Um, so what we mean by that, of course, is you know rounds in companies and investors are already in, so topping them off or accelerating fundraising activity. But what we also saw, uh, and we saw this actually at Finister in our own portfolio, we had a number of deals that were in train that suddenly the the companies became very motivated to get those rounds done because they were just as concerned as the investors about what might happen in terms of uncertainty. So we saw a second hit. We saw deals that were maybe moving along, moseying along at their own pace. Suddenly everyone got really focused. Let's let's get these things done and let's close these rounds. So Q2's results in that report, you know, for 2020 showed a big spike. That was the the largest quarter on record for financing agri food deals 
Um, but you might have thought, well, okay, there's going to be a hollowing out of Q3 and Q4 because all the, all the deals got pulled forward. Well, that was wrong too. Um, what we saw actually was that um, a number of factors, including, I think, um, a focus on the importance of supply chain resilience. So we saw, you know, um, supermarket retailers, you know, struggle to keep products in stock. Uh, we saw, you know, the well-documented challenges for, for processes like Tyson's, for example, not to call them out, but, you know, clearly one of the bigger public stories around COVID transmission inside food manufacturing and food processing. Um, in the meat industry, just to pick one industry, but there are obviously many, many others where there was supply chain disruption. And so um, and the, the biggest one we call out in the report is, is also that, of course, people stuck at home. We saw the first time, you know, if you look at National Restaurant Association's numbers and, uh, and also um, Progressive Grocer numbers, they all noted that this was the biggest year on, since 1994 for consumption at home, so spend at home versus spend out in restaurants, cook service, restaurants, fast food and the like. So people kind of hunkered down at home. And guess what? All those cookbooks got dusted off or, you know, Epicurious links and gourmet magazine links. Yeah. Suddenly everyone's out at home cooking. And of course, that also helped all the food kit, meal kit companies. It helped meal delivery, the DoorDashes, the Uber Eats, et cetera, of the world. It also had a, a huge impact on e-commerce purchasing. So um, companies that e-commerce retail for food saw, you know, saw massive growth, you know, companies like Good Eggs that we're an investor in said like, you know, we had, th- we had three years of our growth plan happen in one year. Wow. Um, That's crazy. So that also drove more investment into the sector um, as, as investors that actually, you know what, this ag and food thing, you know, you spent a huge part of your career in the ag world, you know how important it is, but other people caught on. People who are not necessarily investors in the space previously caught on and they piled in. So we saw more than 8,000 unique investors in 2020, which is like essentially almost double the number of the previous year. And guess what? The 22 billion that went into the entire sector, food and ag, 5 billion of that's an ag, but the entire sector uh, essentially doubled. 2019 was a record year. 2020 doubled the record year. So when I say astounding, it's it's astounding, the amount of capital that's discovered, you know, this sexy new new sector agri food uh-huh. yes yeah. <laughs> but when you look at it when you look at it i mean and i often just look at the ag tech side not the food side because of where we write the ag tech side i mean in 2019 it was two and a half billion dollars it was just bumping along at around two two and a half billion but in 2020 we're talking five billion just into ag tech alone and like you say some of it was follow-on because um, it was a lot of Series B and Series C, not as much angel investing, which is a different level. It's like angels where you start and B and C starts to get toward that long-term late stage well, funding. And there was D and later rounds. Oh, yeah. Some really big rounds. Um, and I think it's a great point you pick up on because, again, it looks astounding in one sense, but if you step back in context, you know, the sector – is, is one that's been growing sort of the last decade. You know, you, you mm-hmm. go back and I think you, you referenced or talked about in previous discussions, you know, climate corp as, yep. sort of a, as sort of a, um, you know, um, a bellwether deal kind of signaled the beginning of this movement. But what's also happened is capital has been going into the sector in ag at the rate of about a 50% growth rate, compound growth rate every year. 
So every year, more and more capital is coming in. Guess what? There's now a large cohort of much more mature companies with revenue, with established products, with partnerships in the market with the majors, with distribution, um, often going international in some cases. So they're in Latin America, they're in Asia, they're in OSPAC, they're in Europe. And so you just have a bigger pool of companies that are actually worthy of bringing in bigger checks. And so the other sort of thing you saw in the report is that the median deal size was at an all-time high and the preponderance of capital had moved to the late stage by total dollars, not by number of deals. There's still a lot of early stage deals getting funded, but the dollars moved with the maturity and the scale of, um, of, the, of the best companies in the space across ag and food. Yeah. But that, I think, was a big factor in what you saw in, in the doubling of that ag number. It's, a, it's kind of a combination of the maturing of the last decade of investment. Well, when you get to late stage two, aren't the checks bigger anyway? I mean, from the standpoint, you know, we're talking 200 million here, 300 million there. You're talking serious cash. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, pitch, PitchBook and their methodology defines these yeah. as mega, mega rounds. Yep. So all of the food and all of the egg deals, the top 15 deals, they're all mega rounds. They're all 100 million plus. Wow. And, and some of them were, as you pointed out, serious multiples of 100 million, like 200, 300, 500 million dollar deals getting done. Yeah. And so when you think back 10 years to the sort of round sizes we saw 10 years ago, it seems laughable now to sort of say, well, this company only raised 30 million or 20 million. Those were serious round sizes a decade ago. Yeah. Um, but I think the overarching takeaway you can take from this data set is that agri-food has arrived as a yes. asset class being invested in by a wide range of investors. So specialist funds like us, yes, but also everything from family offices. Um, there's a section in the report that talks about the boom in corporate venture capital, which yes. has been a big driver. So that the corporates themselves buying innovation as opposed to or buying a seat at the table to see which innovations play out as opposed to internal R&D alone. And uh, all the way through to, you know, even um, sovereign players so, you know, one of the, I would call out a couple of the players that I think are particularly notable, um, Tomasek out of Singapore, yeah. um, who have been, have been all, all over it in terms of ag and food right across the supply chain. And so you know, a, a quasi-strategic financial investor, um, as well as, uh, you know, the Danes actually have a green growth fund. So the um, they have a specific focus here. And one, one thing we're seeing also is the rise of carbon and climate investment. Oh, yeah coming back on the table um, you know, with vigor um, as well too. So that, that's another thing I think that kicked in at the tail end of this 2020 year. We started to see quite a few ESG investors coming into the space. And in the first half of or first quarter of 2021, you know, that, that area is exploding. Well, I know. And, and when you look too, there will be some changes in some of the pitches too, because if I were a sensor and smart farm equipment company like that sector with names like a Tevel and CropEx, they got measurement tools that will play off on that carbon market. I mean, there's a lot going on there. Let's back up for a second and ask one question. Uh, I, a lot of people listen to this podcast are farmers. Why should a farmer care that this money's being put in? A lot of these products and pro companies are still just barely getting into this business. Why, why should I pay attention to this as a farmer? Um, I think two really critical reasons. One, farming has had a very tough decade. 
Um, you know, I think uh, USDA stats suggest that only 60% of farms are profitable without right. subsidy or support. That's, so it's been a hard place to be in. And the, the, the answer, I think, the first answer to your question is that technology holds the possibility of unlocking more sustainable revenue on your farm. Mm-hmm. So I would see it actually as a real positive. I know sometimes farmers get fatigued by this startup or that yes. startup knocking on their door. I get it. Um, some of those are companies of ours, mea culpa. Um, but on the flip side of that, it's look, it's because we believe, and I, I know coming from a farming family background in New Zealand, I'm passionate about the fact that we need new technologies to make farms more profitable. Like number one, show me the money, that's important. Because of, because of uh, sustainability, you know, and what are, are often family businesses. So that's number one. Number two, um, the world of farming is changing. Um, you know, it's a constant, but it's changing on an accelerated basis for a couple of reasons. One, we have greater visibility through the supply chain to the consumer than ever before. And actually, if you're a smart farmer, you can use that visibility to give consumers what they want and get rewarded for it. And, uh, you know, who was really talking about growing pea protein extract for alternative, you know, company, alternative protein companies like Beyond and Impossible, just to name a couple, Ripple, another great company you know, right. in, the, in the dairy space. Those companies need new portfolios of products. Um, but even across in products like, you know, our, our majors like corn and soy, yeah. there's greater demand for transparency across the supply chain. And as you just touched on, there's opportunities to get rewarded for good farming practices, including environmental and sustainability practices, for example, and closed loop purchasing systems. So I think, you know, for the farmer, how can technology, you know, help you get greater returns? How can it help you get greater sustainability? And then something that doesn't get talked about enough is how can technology also buy you back more time from a lifestyle and quality life standpoint? You know, so you mentioned CropEx. It's super helpful to be able to monitor your water system and or nutrient system and not actually have to go out and manually check it in the field. You know, those are hours you get back, those are hours Lucas get back, and you can do better things with those hours. You know, so those, those are just some of the reasons. Yep. But I, I think um, the good news for farmers is that investors see the opportunity here um, and are piling in. Um, and I think, you know, the smart farmers are using the opportunity to test technologies to um, build relationships with folks who can actually help them make a, a more profitable, sustainable business. So tell me a little bit more about what Finisteer does. What I mean, how, what's your role in all of this? You, you're obviously, your pitch book is a beautiful picture of what's happened in 2020. So where do you go with this and, and what's your role in this whole ag tech sector? So so we're um, investors. Yeah. Um, We've um, been investing out of funds into ag and food since 2006. So uh, we've really seen the growth and build out of this um, over quite a long period of time. And uh, it's been pretty stunning. Uh, we used to joke there were maybe five investors in the world that we knew who were investing in agri-food. Well, now there's at least 8,000. It's yeah. been, quite, been quite the journey. Um, part of the reason for us working with PitchBook on this report is that we found it difficult to get really get high-quality um, information and data on investment trends in the space. And so we, we literally went all the way back and started off with a designing a classification system, which we worked on with PitchBook together. We sort of, they said, look, we're not ag and food experts. How would you sort of, you know, break up and define the sector? And that's the work that we've done on that report and what we call yeah. taxonomy, fancy way of sort of saying classification, yeah. really. 
Um, and and that, that's been the sort of the, the foundation of the work we did with Pitchbrook in this report was to really get better information. And then we decided, you know what, this is this is info that's not just useful to us, it's useful to the industry. Let's let's take the opportunity to publish a report out of this work. Um, but we use all those data sets day in, day out for our own investment decision making. So that's kind of how it started. Mm-hmm. And then it's then you know, I think we we've found that others in the industry have found it really useful for this report. So we sort of do to some extent kind of as a you know a service to the ecosystem and and also a way of us sort of continuing to build our own future theses like what are the areas that were were great to invest in five years ago aren't necessarily the ones that are capturing our attention as we move forward and sort of i think the other just personal observation is it's been pretty stunning to see the pace of change in this sector you know um i know you see it probably day to day when you think about just how farming practices have evolved, what people are growing, what they're focused on in their business. But if you think about what are the big drivers, technology is certainly one of them. You know, if not now, I think maybe the critical one. You know, yeah. Take carbon, for example. You used to look at that and say, well, this was going to be regulated by carbon pricing markets driven by regulation and compliance. I think what's driving this now is ESG in the consumer. It's, yeah. not that, it's not that the government doesn't have a role, of course it does, in terms of setting the rules and framework environmentally. But you look at the number of um, companies, for example, that want to get carbon credits so they can say, look, we're going to net zero carbon in our business. Just to call out one really big one, I mean, our friends at Amazon, right? You yep. know, advertising all over the screen, we're going to be net carbon zero by 2040. Um, and that's a big task when, you, when, when your business is a distribution company. Airlines, um, yeah. big tech. Um, it's not just the food and egg sector that's been, you know, um, attracted into this space. That changes the whole conversation for the farmer, you know, um, in a good way, I think, actually. Maybe yeah. finally, finally we get credit for the good we do. Yeah, yeah we, we're still working through that because we're concerned about how this will be measured and how long it'll last. And I'm sure you're looking at those technologies, too. You know, when I look at Finisterre and I see your name come up and some of the deals that come through, you partner or you're part of pools of people that, invest in companies. One of the things that has come on in the last couple of years that I've noticed is, you know, I'll go to an event and I'll sit down with Bear's venture capital guy, or I'll be with Syngenta's venture capital person. I mean, these are companies that, like you said earlier, they they had their own R&D, but now they're sitting there going, well, if we peel a little money off, maybe we can play in something we never thought of, and then we either would benefit from it in our line by either buying it or Maybe just benefit by knowing the technology, having an inside view of the technology, right? I think it's exactly right. Um, and and look, I think there's some there's some corporates you've mentioned a couple. There are others that are doing a really good job, kind of enriching the sector as well yeah. too, because those big companies often have insights and capabilities um, that are not available to startups generally that they can make available through their network. So you, know, you mentioned Syngenta. I think they've they've done a really nice job. So is Bayer Leaps of integrating technologies also into into developing markets. So the trickle down effect, yep. whether it's in Latin America or Bayer's doing some pretty cool stuff in Africa. Um, but they're an, they're an essential part of the ecosystem for sure in terms of bringing helping bring technology to market. And I think they're following a a well trodden proven path in other sectors. So um, let's just take Big Pharma had yep. this realization when they went from having massive R and D programs for Every you know every drug under the sun to the the explosion of biotechs in the 2000s in particular, 
investing in funds, investing in those biotechs directly, M&A to acquire them. And it's sort of like, what do we do really well? Well, we do regulatory really well. We do product packaging really well. We do supply chain and sales really well. We don't always do a great job of, of discovery and early commercialization. So maybe we can make some bets that way. And I think ag is kind of, to some extent, and food are following pretty closely the track that Pharma did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Well, yeah, because when I talk to an ag tech company, often I'll ask, well, what's it matter to the farmer? But then my second question is often, how are you going to get this to the farmer? I mean, it's great to have a really cool tool, but if you don't understand ag retail and the two-step distribution system and crop protection or how dealers work and how manufacturers reps work and our whole ecosystem of retail and agriculture, then you're pretty much, that's a really nice tool you've got. It's really shiny and we'll never see it in the country. So yeah, it's kind of a conversation. I think that's definitely, we've seen that. Um, but I also feel there um, the times they are changing in this regard. Um, just as we saw um, e-commerce and online retail really have a huge effect on physical retail, um, just again, back to Amazon amongst others. Um, I think what we're also seeing is um, back to the farmer, how is the retail system helping the farmer make more money? That's a question you know, they've got to answer. And I think if there are innovations that can genuinely lift the performance of the farm, I would not be surprised to see different strategies being used to get to that consumer. In this case, the farmer's the consumer. Mm -hmm. right. um, which we're seeing with companies like Farmers Business Network, for example, with a one shot on goal there. But I, um, I also, what we think we're going to see is that if you if you have tech and seed is an area that's really especially interesting, um, because you know most farmers use it one form or another. Even if it's yeah. indirect, even in the livestock business, ultimately you're buying. You're buying grains, you're buying oil crops, oil seed crops for feed. But that business is one I think that is, is very ripe for disruption, in part because the innovation pipeline of the major seed companies is pretty empty. So you know, we see companies like Benson Hill um, in our portfolio, ZCal, yes. um, which are developing technologies focused on out, output traits to drive, as opposed to herbicide tolerance or insect, insect resistance, pest resistance to drive overall better yield and also better composition, um, which farmers can get rewarded for. Yeah. Um, so I, I, let's, let's, this might take a while to come back to come full circle, really, but it'll be good to maybe pick up this conversation in a few years and just see how things might have morphed. Yeah. I have no problem with that, Arma, because this is changing. I mean, like I said, I was shocked that 2020 was such a big year. But like you say, we may have been hitting a tipping point for the follow-on folks to say, let's move this stuff down the line. So I'll be curious to see how 2021 shapes up and what really comes to market now that this is going on. I mean, I've worked with a few startups, uh, Anuvia and companies like that, and sure. they've got product in the marketplace. and. They're they're getting the retail connections, so it's kind of fun to follow. Like you 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 follow it on the back end, and I get to follow it on the front end, and it's really fun to see these companies go from a call I got five years ago from two guys in a garage <laughs> to actually doing stories with farmers using the product. It's a lot of fun, so it's it's great to watch this uh, business evolve. Congratulations on the pitch book. It's very interesting. It, it really paints a neat, deep picture of what's going on in the ag and food sector. It's good to talk to you, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Uh, you take care and have a great day. Thanks, Wally. It was good. As Arma Kukatai observed with the rise of late-stage funding, 
it's likely farmers will be hearing more from many of those companies. We thank him for sharing his thoughts. If you want to dig into that report, you can download it by visiting finisteer.com. That's F-I-N-I-S-T-E-R-E.com. And you'll find a link to that report right at the top of their homepage. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team and experts in our industry. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as farm futures, beef, national hog farmer, and feedstuffs, and the Farm Progress show and Husker Harvest Days. And it's time to register for the 2021 Farm Futures Business Summit and Ag Finance Boot Camp. You can learn more at farmfuturesummit.com and you can save 20% if you use the promo code FARMFUN, all one word, when you register. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening. <music>